I'm sure that, uh, that many of you kind of expected that if we do, if we do things on, on Easter morning, that it's all, uh, what, what's the phrase, rainbows and unicorns, right? That, that it's, it's all bright and cheery. But we forget that Easter morning actually started with tears. That, that, there was, that, that at daybreak, or at least right before daybreak, the same story that happened Friday night and Saturday morning was still the reality. Um, we, we, give, we get this story of, um, of Mary, Mary of, of Mary Magdalene or Mary of Magdala, um, who had been one of the closest disciples of Jesus throughout the second half of his, of his ministry. She followed him. He had healed her, we're told, um, of, of multiple demons, meaning that she was afflicted in some deep way that we don't know or understand. We're not told the whole story, but that Jesus spoke or touched and healed and brought a complete transformation. We're told actually that Mary was one of the ones later. Uh, she must have been a woman of at least some means because she was bankrolling Jesus's ministry later on with a couple of other, a couple of other women. I don't know if you realize that Jesus' ministry was funded by women, um, but uh, it's right there. So you can look that up for yourselves later. But, uh, but it's really this, this incredible story of one of the most loyal, one of the most committed, one of the most transformed figures in our story that we have is Mary. Every gospel mentions that she is in front of the tomb, that she is at the crucifixion. Okay, but in this, in this story, I just, I want you to, to think about something because Mary has been with, with the other women, with Salome and, and, and others who are preparing, and this was obviously just a, um, a fictitious imagination of what might have been going through someone who, is, who has loved so deeply and lost so much. We do know that Mary eventually showed up in front of the tomb. Whether she went there reluctantly or not, we can only imagine. But we also know the pain of loss and the pain of grief. And so, so Mary has, has prepared with the others to, to go ahead and, and anoint Jesus' body, which was a way of honoring the dead. Okay, it was, um, and we won't, we won't get into all of that, but I want to talk about the loss that Mary must have been experiencing. Because she is the embodiment of, of a hope that's lost. Personal transformation. The one who understood her. The one who walked with her and didn't give up on her when she was afflicted and when she was oppressed and broken. But also, not just the relationship and the friendship, this was the one believed to have been the Messiah. So there was not just the loss of a relationship, but there was the loss of a dream for my people. That God would come and make things right. And this was the hope. This was the story. And that story was cut off at the legs. That story was hung on a cross, unfairly in every way. And we can just imagine the depth of Mary's loss personally and as a people as she considers this longing for redemption that, that doesn't happen. And so we're told in the book of John that Mary, we don't know, in, John doesn't go into detail about some of the others. We don't know exactly who all is there at the time, but we know that Mary is the focal person. And Mary's there at the tomb. She's seen an empty tomb. She doesn't know what to make of it. Some of the other disciples come. They take a look. 
They leave. She comes back. And here's what happens. You know, we're talking about questions, right? We've been talking for two months about questions that Jesus asks. Jesus asks two pointed questions post-resurrection in the book of John. He actually asks three, but I can't give three little mini-sermons. So, but he asks two very important ones. <laughs> actually, okay, so the first time I, I decided what we were going to be talking about a while ago, and when I went back to this passage, uh, I'll tell you what happened, and I thought I'd made a, a really big mistake. Um, So Mary stood outside the tomb and she's crying, right? And as she wept, she bent over and saw, uh, bent over to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. And they asked her, woman, why are you crying? And the first time I read that, I thought, oh shoot, in my mind, I thought Jesus asked that question. And here we've been talking about all these questions that Jesus asked, and all of a sudden I'm founding our Easter message on a question that somebody else asked. And then I read on and realized why I was thinking that. So obviously, let's just talk about this question first. Woman, why are you crying? Can we just admit, can we just admit that that question, at least 70% of the time, is a question you should never ask? Right? Like honestly, it's very important. Why are you crying is a horrible question to ask most of the time because it makes somebody feel bad. In the midst of someone's mourning, they all of a sudden are, what, bound to give an explanation to you? So we've got all this stuff going on, right? Like a really insensitive question, unless there's a really, really, really good reason for it. So Mary is so distraught at this point. Um, her, her response, obviously, there was plenty of... Um, I don't know where the screen just went. Maybe here? Okay, thank you. Um, there, was, there was plenty of, uh, of, of rumors going about that, um, that people would potentially try to steal Jesus' body. Again, he was a revolutionary, so people who honored Jesus might want to steal his body, and people who wanted to get rid of Jesus might want to steal his body. So anyways, here's her response when they ask these, these, these uh, angelic <laughs> figures, ask, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away. Put him. At this, she turned around. So, so, before we go on. So she's afraid because she doesn't know where the body has gone, right? A couple of years ago, I think we talked about this. Her imagination can only go so far. Even her imagination is only as good as he's been taken away. Not that he's alive. Because she's so full of distraught that she can't, she, she has a ceiling to where her hope can go. So right now, the best that she can hope for is at least seeing the body of Jesus once again. Okay. So, she says this, she says, I don't know what's going on, I don't know where he is, that's just why I want to find him. So she turns around, and she sees Jesus standing there, but she doesn't see Jesus standing there. She sees somebody else in her mind, right? Jesus' appearance looks different, one of the mysteries of the resurrected Christ, and that's a whole different topic for a different day. But she sees him, and she doesn't realize that it's Jesus. And he asks her, and this is where I was like, oh yeah, that's where I got it from. Woman, why are you crying? A second time being asked the same question. This is just brutal. It's so cringeworthy for any of you who have been asked that question before, right? Woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? At first, it feels heartless, right? 
even for Jesus to ask, even though he knows what's coming. Right? Why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? She thinks he's a gardener or the gardener, the caretaker of the area. And she says again in the same mindset, Sir, if you've, take, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will get him. So in Mary's mind, apparently she's going to lug the body of Jesus on her, we don't know how big her frame is, but she's going to, you know, she's, just, she's not thinking straight probably at this point. Just tell me where he is. I'll get him myself. I'll bring him back. I'll honor him. Whatever. Jesus says to her, Mary, he says her name. And when he speaks her name, there's something about that tone, and the light bulb goes off. <sighs> there is death all around us right now. It's, it's hard to enter into Easter without an awareness of that. We see injustice, we see poverty. We see greed, we see violence, we see depression. There's people that are dying. And we believe that God has a dream for the world on our good days, right? But on the others, we feel the weight of it all, even if we're trying to do the right thing. Even if we trust God, even if we believe that there's hope, we just feel the weight of this, even if we're praying and following Jesus and seeking really honestly. Crying sometimes just feels like the appropriate response to everything. Jesus would only ask this question, why are you crying, right? If there was something so big, so hopeful, so beautiful, that at the moment of realization, all crying would actually feel inappropriate, even though we know that there are so many times that crying is appropriate. Jesus asks the question because maybe there are some things, some realities, that once we grasp them, at that moment when we grasp them, even crying becomes inappropriate as a response. So he says her name, and at that moment, he restores her vision. Her vision was lost, right? She couldn't see him. She couldn't see hope. So we come today, maybe with some tears. Maybe you're trying, like Mary, to be faithful with every fiber of your being, but you're just tired, and you can't see any hope. And so we sit with this story. We sit with Mary the faithful but marry the heartbroken. And we begin to let hope and we begin to let joy in. Teacher, she exclaims, she runs and she embraces him. Hope is alive. Why are you crying? The power of death and ultimate pain has been ultimately defeated. Why are you crying? The very God of the universe is alive and working to bring the kingdom about. Still, why are you crying? You're not alone in this world. You have been given the body of Christ to accompany you in it. Why are you crying? The plan is still unfolding that will one day wipe away every tear from every eye. Why are you crying? Jesus is right now alive and he loves you. Why are you crying? Nothing in life is beyond redemption. And how do we know that last part? Nothing in life is beyond redemption. Because Jesus didn't simply come back from the dead. He didn't simply rise. He came back in a certain way. He came back to help us understand all that the resurrection was about. Because the book of John, later, he asks another question in John 21. 
uh, after he's risen to a different disciple who didn't fare so well as the faithful Mary in this case. Let's take a look at the second question that Jesus asks as we think about the hope that that Jesus gives to Mary. In John 13, Jesus is talking with his disciples about how he's going to be deserted one day and how he's going to a place where others cannot go. And his very vocal lead disciple, we might say, Peter, we think Peter was older than the others. Um, Often disciple or rabbis would have a group of disciples, but one of them was older and they were the model disciple. So a disciple would do things like ask a lot of questions and be quick to volunteer for something. And so you would have an older one that would set the tone for all of the younger ones. By the way, we, we understand that most of these disciples were probably teenagers, Peter being the exception. Very, very high likelihood. We can't prove this, but, but all, all roads point to this. So, so Peter, who is always the one to give the correct answer, to show the example to everybody, Jesus is talking about how one day uh, he's going somewhere and they can't follow him, not to where he's going. And Peter pipes up in John 13 and he says, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. He's getting all pumped up. Peter the brave. Jesus says, will you really lay down your life for me, Peter? I tell you the truth, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. Of course, Peter won't believe that. But later that night, around a charcoal fire, after Jesus is arrested and the disciples flee, he follows behind at a distance. He has a chance to kind of watch outside the gates what's happening, and he gets named as one of the disciples. He looks like a Galilean. Literally, literally his appearance gives him away. And they say, hold on, you're one of those. You're a Galilean. You're probably with Jesus. He says, no, 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 I wasn't. He says, no, I wasn't a second time. A third time he's asked and he says, absolutely not. I don't even know this guy. And when that happens, the rooster crows. And can we just pause at that moment and think about the worst moment in somebody's relational life? Because that's what Peter is experiencing. The one that he said he loved, the one that he that that said who believed in him. And Peter says, I don't even know this guy. Okay? The worst, most devastating moment of Peter's life. (sighs) He loses every ounce of commitment and integrity that he had. And then a few days later, we know what happens. The news comes that Jesus has risen. Utter elation for everybody right? I mean, most everybody. You can imagine Peter being a bit conflicted, completely full of joy, but knowing what he did in the last moments of Jesus' life. Interestingly, the first two times that that, uh, Jesus comes back, Peter is a non-factor in the story. Guess what? Every time that Jesus interacts with the disciples, Peter is a factor in the story because he's such a loud mouth. He always jumps in front of, sorry, for those of you on digital, Um, he jumps in front of everybody else and he says, ooh, pick me, me first. I'll speak up first. I'll, I'll step out of the boat first. I'll answer your question first. So, so all of a sudden, Jesus comes back, and we don't even know if Peter's there anymore. We don't know. His name's not even mentioned until John 21. And in John 21, we pick up the story, okay? Um, so, uh, so just imagine this, this, this man whose soul is aching so much, um, who, uh, who, who realizes how unworthy he is of being the disciple of Jesus, okay? Not even worthy of being a servant. I'm nothing. 
So the third time that Jesus appears after his resurrection in, in John 20, um, he's in the boat like he started out as. And Jesus appears on the shore. And Jesus says from the shore, he calls out and he says, have you caught any fish? Just like the first time or pretty close to the first time he ever spoke to Peter and called him. And at that moment, Peter realizes, actually John realizes it and says, it's the Lord. But Peter has a classic, classic Peter move, finally. He rips off his clothes and jumps in the water and swims to shore real fast. This is the Peter that at least we, we've seen a bit more of, okay? And so he gets there and Jesus is cooking over charcoal fire. Fascinating. Over fire. We've talked about this before, if you've been with us a few years. You know those sensory moments where you, you smell something or you, you taste something and it brings back a memory, right? Last time Peter was in front of a fire, at least according to the scriptures, he was sitting there denying Jesus. So, so the smoke is coming up from this charcoal fire and Jesus invites him to share a meal together. Okay, see all these parallels are happening. And when he does, he speaks finally to Peter and he says this. Uh, when he finished eating in John, John 21, he says, Simon, son of John, or uh, to Simon Peter, he, people had multiple names, so we won't get into it. Um, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Don't get hung up on the these. He's not acting, he's not trying to get uh, the disciples to play favorites. He's probably looking around and talking about this way of life that he's gone back to, the fish, the nets, the boats. Do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus says, feed my lambs. Then he does this second time. Simon, do you love me? And a second time he answers, yes, you know that I love you. Jesus says, take care of my sheep. Now here's what you need to know. One of the most beautiful elements of the entire Easter story about this question. In the Greek world and in, in our, our Bible, there's multiple words for love, okay? The one that John loves the most. <laughs> Get it? The one that John uh, uses the most to talk about the love of God, for God so loved the world. Every time Jesus speaks of the word love, it's the same, it's the same word, okay? And that word is agape. And that word agape means a love that gives itself. The most sacrificial form of love, a love that is so pure that it puts another before oneself, okay? Now, there's another word, too, for love. Actually, there's two other ones, but we won't get into the third one because it's not in the story. But the second word for love is phile or phileo. Okay? Now, phile, if you've heard of it before, you should have because we have a city named after it, after that same word, Philadelphia, which is known as the city of brotherly love, right? And so what phile is, is it's a familial love, a deep affection. I really care for you. I like you. You are a dear friend. Okay? It's not the same level as agape. There's no question. Okay? Now, here's the thing. Jesus looks at Peter, and it's fascinating if you look at this in the original language, and I don't usually do this stuff, but it's worth it for this because it changes the meaning because all we do is we say everything's love in English. Jesus looks at Peter the first time, and he says, Peter, do you have agape love for me? Do you have sacrificial love? And Peter looks at him, and he says, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He uses phileo. You know that I care deeply about you. Jesus asks him a second time, goes back to agape. Peter, do you have agape love for me? Do you love me sacrificially because you said you did? 
And we could just think that, that, that the, the potential for shame being poured on is, is, is right there. We're right on the precipice of, of a massive amount of shame being poured onto Peter. Because you can feel it. And Peter, for the second time, knows that he can't own it. Knows that he can't say, yes, Jesus, I love you sacrificially. Because the opportunity came and he failed. And so again, the second time, he says, Lord, you know, you know I care about you. And a third time, remember, Peter denies Jesus three times. A third time, Jesus goes back to Peter and asks what looks like the same question. Simon, son of John, do you love me? This time, Peter is hurt. Maybe offended. But hurt meaning the wound is, is open. Because Jesus asked him, do you love me? And here's what happens in this moment, the final time that Jesus asks Peter this question, he says, Peter, are you my friend? And he changes the word. So he says, do you love me sacrificially? Do you love me sacrificially? Do you, do you care for me, maybe? And Peter looks at him, and he says, Lord, you know all things. You know the depth of my heart. You know that I do care for you. And Jesus says, feed my sheep. Here's the significance about all, a story like this. We get a story like Mary, who is the faithful, the example in the scriptures at this point. And then we get a story like Peter. And Peter is the unfortunate example of unfaithfulness at the story. You know, he's the one who denies. And when the time comes for Jesus to be resurrected and interact with him again, do you know what he does? Jesus says, do you love me sacrificially? Peter says, I can't go there. Jesus says, do you love me sacrificially? Peter says, I want to, but I can't go there. And then he finally says, well then, do you love me as a brother, as a friend? Jesus is the one that moves to Peter. And we can't see it at first readings, but this is a massive amount of absolute grace. Because Peter says, yeah, yes, I can do that kind of love. And it's as if Jesus is saying, okay, we'll start there. We'll start there. Because then Jesus goes on and he says, listen, I'm telling you, Peter, you think that this isn't enough. And to be honest, it's not. We know that that's not the fullest expression of love. But guess what? One day, one day, because you follow me, you're going to go even to a place where you don't want to go, but you're going to go out there because of faithfulness, and you're going to give your life. And one day, sacrificial love will be the way we define you. There's grace for you. You think you're a failure, but I will come to you. I will make up the difference, and we will start there. That is the power. So, so what we get is we get the story of Mary, and she, she is, is faithfully pursuing Jesus, but she needs such hope, and he speaks hope to us. And we get the example of the unfaithful Peter, and Peter needs so much grace, and that's what Jesus gives her to. And so the whole point is it doesn't matter if you are actively, faithfully doing everything that you can to pursue Jesus, or if you realize that you just haven't been able to get there, and you feel like a failure and you feel like you're falling short, Jesus says, both of those, I will speak to you. I will meet you where you are. I will love you. I will bring you life. So, I love that in each of these stories, Mary knows something, or Jesus knows something that Mary doesn't, and he wants her to see it so badly, so he asks her a question to help her see. She's been so faithful, and he wants her to know the hope 
that is still there in her sorrow. And Jesus knows something Peter doesn't, but he wants him to see it so badly. So he asks him these questions to help him see. And he wants him to know that there is grace to be had. He wants Peter to know that whatever Peter's able to give, he will make up the difference because that's what grace does. So which one are you today? Maybe a little of both. It's usually most days where I am. A little of both. A little faithful pursuit. A little failure. Some days, very little faithful pursuit. A lot of failure. Some good days, get the right image, the right vision for my life, for what God is, for who God is. A lot of faithful pursuit. A little bit of failure. Doesn't matter. God meets us at each of those spots. <sighs> to the faithless ones who are so filled with shame and regret, so acutely aware of how they have failed to love sacrificially, Jesus is speaking grace in the resurrection. Jesus comes back and doesn't say, hey, all you people, all you people who murdered me, all you people who killed me unjustly, I'm back. And guess what? There's going to be, you know, to pay. He says, I'm back so I can express to you the full level of my forgiveness and my grace. How incredible is that? This is the story. The story is that not, not just that death is, is not the end, but that there is grace upon grace upon grace in the entire world. And even if we're filled with exhaustion and sorrow, even if we look around and we see brokenness, even if, if we feel like, you know what, I know I'm supposed to be joyful, but all I feel is sorrow, then receive the gift of hope that Jesus wants to give through Easter. Receive the gift that your heart is enough and God will work with you from there. And God will restore your heart if there's just so much sorrow that there's not much space for anything else. God is remaking the world for the worthy and the unworthy alike, giving joy to those of us who might only be able to see sorrow at some point, and giving grace to those of us who might only be able to see shame. So <clears throat> we learn, um, and oh, by the way, the coolest part, one of the coolest parts, is that both Peter and Mary are sent as a result of this encounter. So Mary becomes commissioned, and, and uh, the early church um, kind of leaders called her the apostle to the apostles. She's the first one who is sent to declare the good news to the rest of the disciples from the tomb. So, so Mary leads the way, and she is sent and used in beautiful, great ways, all right? This woman who was once afflicted and broken, restored, and then given the mantle of proclamation. And Peter, this guy who failed miserably, ran away from Jesus, even denied knowing him, is told that he will one day be the backbone of the church in Jerusalem, and he does. He takes it, and he leads so well. And if you read the book of First Peter, and you reflect on what it means that Peter was once this, this kind of wishy-washy, immature disciple, and who he became, it's founded in this conversation right here, because Jesus said, I'm going to keep using you. Don't worry. Oh, it's just brilliant. It's so, it's so filled with hope. God wants to work with us and walk with us in purpose, no matter where we are at on the journey. So they both start with darkness, both of these stories, but there is light to be had. There is light to be had. So we learn to live in that spirit of resurrection and to receive the words of Jesus, why are you crying? Not as a shameful thing that tells us that we can't feel sorrow, but as a reminder that ultimate despair has no home. Ultimate despair has no home in the heart of a Christ follower. Sorrow may last for the night, but joy comes in the morning, the scriptures talk about. So there is always hope, regardless of how dark the world seems.
regardless of how frustrated we may be with ourselves and others. <sighs> so, um, so Jesus, like them, he probably knows something you don't know today, um, or at least something that maybe you need to see again this morning fresh. That's the way it is with faith. That's the way it is with living with this, the resurrection life. So, so Jesus has to constantly bring us back to life with him. That's the way this works. Jesus constantly bringing us back to life with him. So what is it? What does Jesus want to help you see this morning uh, as you sit with kind of this hope-filled, grace-filled message of life? What does Jesus want you to see? What word of life is Jesus stirring in you today? I want you to sit with that question. It's quite a simple question. The God of the universe absorbs the sin, the violence, the darkness of the world. He does away with it. He resurrects and he communicates that not only death is beaten, not only do we have hope of forever life, but there is grace for the world now too. And the ongoing work of restoration is continuing. So what is the word of life that Jesus speaks to you? If you actually want to sit with that and respond, we can, we'll do something very simple. Um, if, if you have your, uh, your phones and you want to, you certainly don't have to participate in this, but right as we leave, uh, we can maybe uh, be encouraged by one or two words that maybe uh, you, you feel Jesus stirring. Maybe it's, maybe it's grace. Maybe it's, uh, maybe it's joy. You know, maybe it's a new chance. I don't know what that word is that's stirring, but here's what you can do. We do this every now and then, once every couple of years. If you have your phone, and we don't do this but to, to be like all trendy. We do this because it's a way for us to be a, a body of Christ. But if you have your phone, you can do two things. As you just think about this question, what word of life is Jesus stirring in you today? You text uh, two, 22333 is like the name, okay? And just send the message, lifepath598, and that opens a little room. And then you send one or two words. What word of life is Jesus stirring in you? And, uh, and it'll collect. It's, it's totally anonymous. But it'll just give us a chance to say, where is God encouraging each of us in different ways today? So if you send your first message, it'll say thank you. And then the second message is what'll pop up. Okay? Um, so I just want to encourage, encourage you to sit with Jesus. Say, Jesus, in, in a day like today, in a day where I'm thinking about the colorless world of death and darkness and brokenness and tears, and the colorful world of a life lived forever, and the hope of full redemption of all things. What, what stirs in me the most? So if you want to participate in that, it won't show every answer, but it'll, it'll show a smattering of them. And uh, in just a couple minutes, we'll, uh, we'll receive that as we sing our, our final song and head out. There is such power in the resurrection. There is such power in the Easter story today. One of the interesting things is uh, that joy outpaces death in this whole story. Um, the, the Easter season of the church calendar lasts 50 days. Lent lasts 40. You get it? Like the joy overcomes the sorrow. Lent is often a season for sitting deeply in our own brokenness and being honest and, and sitting with Jesus. And, and Easter season is 50, 50 days long. So we're going to find little ways to celebrate Easter for 50 days because it's bigger than Lent. Why well, sit in sorrow for 40 days and then celebrate for one when the God of life has come? So, so we're going to do that. But the cool thing is it's also one-seventh of the year, Easter, 50 days long. One-seventh of the year. The early church had a lot of wisdom when they created the church calendar to celebrate. It's, it's a Sabbath. 
it's a Sabbath for the year. It's like an eternal Sunday for almost two months where you wake up each morning. You know, Sunday is resurrection, right? Every Sunday is supposed to be a mini Easter. That's why the church celebrates on the first day of the week and not on the Sabbath with where the Jewish people would celebrate. So Jesus rose on a Sunday morning. So they began to celebrate Easter once a week on the first day of the week to remember that we are an Easter people. Cool. Okay. Um, all right. I want to just encourage you, go ahead and take your cup. This is the power of the resurrection in us. This is the power of Christ. There is a personal experience of grace, a receiving of the spirit of Christ that helps us leave behind our deepest tears and our deepest fears forever. There's still pain, friends. There's still pain, but it's not ultimate. We've met the Jesus who conquered death and the Jesus who has rid us of shame. And we've met the Jesus who walks together with us to redeem the world. Ah, so we delight in Jesus's ridiculous pursuit of us, which is a good phrase, I think. Jesus's ridiculous pursuit of us, because most of the time we're not sure if we feel like we are worth pursuing. And Jesus says, oh yes. So we delight in that, and we delight in his patience with a sinful world, and we rejoice with all the earth today. So take your cup, and know that we enjoy, that we rejoice in your bread. We rejoice in the brokenness of God, which heals and changes forever the brokenness of our world. <laughs> we rejoice in the making of a new covenant that's founded on grace, and not about our character, but about God's. There's such beauty there. And we rejoice that the resurrection was a dawn of a new day, and Jesus the first of a new humanity of which we are invited to participate in as we receive his body and his lifeblood. So take and remember, but remember with joy and be thankful. Our shared proclamation that we often do is going to happen through different means this morning. And uh, one of those means is by uh, sitting with this. And friends, I have no idea what's about to happen, by the way, because I don't know if anybody responded or what you wrote, but I trust it can be an encouragement. So I'm going on to the internet, one of the most dangerous things to do during a church service. I mean, half of you have probably been on it the entire time after about 15 minutes of the message. All right, let's see. Hmm. Here we go. So let's just sit. Sit with the beauty of what God is speaking to us as a community. Purpose. Beloved. Forgiveness. Courage. Love anew. Peace. Breath. Healing. Renewal. The Spirit. The Son. The Son.